You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. So James 1, 16-27. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading will be in Proverbs, Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the word of the Lord. So, Father, we come now as children before a father. Children who need wisdom, who need guidance, who need to be instructed in how to live our lives faithfully and skillfully in the world. And so we spend this summer coming to you as, as, as older sons needing instruction, needing help, needing wisdom. I pray, God, that you'd bless that question, that request. God, that you'd speak to us, you'd instruct us, you'd teach us, you'd train us in what it means to live well what it means to live with skill, what it means to live fruitfully and in a way that honors you in this world. So so bless our study of the Proverbs this summer um, and bless us this morning as we think about it um, from the ground up. In your name we pray, amen. So we begin this morning, actually we started last week, uh, Ryan kicked us off by talking about wisdom and friendship. Um, and, uh, and, and each summer it has been our custom to go back to Proverbs and to think about how to live life with skill, um, how to live life well in the world that God has made, 
um, from the ground up and particularly learning from the very words of God. It's one of my favorite things that we do, um, and it is fundamentally a, a, a confession that God cares about every single facet of our lives. Um, that God cannot be relegated to kind of some sort of spiritual realm or religious realm. Um, that God actually cares about um, every single detail of our lives and how we live in the world. He calls us, in fact, to live faithfully, to live skillfully in the world, and to live skillfully in the world such that it bears certain kinds of fruit. Fruit among our children, fruit in terms of wealth, fruit in terms of um, uh, hard work, fruit in terms of things that can serve other people. Um, we, we come back each and every summer to the Proverbs, and we, um, I'm frankly shocked again and again um, as someone who likes to study theology, how God really gets concerned with getting your hands dirty. I would think he wants to just talk about vast, unknowable glories, like predestination and predestination. But instead, he comes and he says, this is when you should set your alarm clock in the morning in order to have a fruitful day. He says, this is how much honey you should eat, but not too much because it will make you sick. He says, this is what you should do with a sluggard. You should avoid them because it's like vinegar on the teeth, which I've never had vinegar on my teeth, but I imagine it's gross, kind of cringy. God cares about that stuff. He speaks into that stuff. And my wife pointed out to me um, this morning how, how um, if you want to take that reality, that the fact that God speaks into every single facet, every single detail, you really have to get, through, get rid of about two-thirds of the Bible, maybe more. The Bible is all about history. It's all about living well and skillfully. It's not just concerned with ideas. It's not just concerned with theologies. Um, all of that stuff matters, by the way. It matters a lot. Like, a lot. But, what it, 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 it finds itself again and again returning to questions of like, like the roof of your house and if you should have like a banister on it. Like, everything God is highly concerned with, as a father should be, how we live and how we live in the world. And undergirding that reality is a simple confession that we would make um, that by its implications would be and is perhaps the most controversial statement a people can make in our day. Namely, that God created the heavens and the earth. And that may strike you as not very controversial. It may strike you as not eminently practical. But, but I, I would set before you that there's few more controversial things that can be said in our day. To assert, to claim that this world and everything in it was made by God that it was designed by God, that it was created for particular purposes by God, is to assert that there is a certain way about the world. Um, I'll put it like this. Uh, the very first time I got a smoker, I was very excited. One of my favorite things on earth used to be um, was brisket. Now it's pork belly. Uh, 
cook the same way. We can get into that discussion later. But um, well, it was brisket. Love brisket. Love smoked brisket. Love eating all the brisket that a man can eat, more than a man should eat. Uh, and as you can tell, and, uh, and so I got this smoker. It was a gift. I was very excited. Looked up recipes on the internet. Found a recipe for making brisket. So I cooked the brisket. There's a number of problems that happened that first time I made the brisket. Um, I tried to rush it. I got impatient and took it off early. Then, um, after I put it back on, let it cook a little bit longer so it could be cuttable, uh, I, I found myself cutting against the grain of the brisket, like, or with the grain, against the grain. Whichever one it is that's wrong, I did the wrong one. So rather than coming out in slices, it came out in sort of like, just like crumbly, not good. It was not a very good experience. I cut it the wrong way. To, to assert that God created the heavens and the earth asserts that there is a right way to cut the brisket. There's a right way to go about life. There's a right way to approach sleep. There's a right way to approach work. There's a right way to go about eating. There's a right way to go about disciplining children. There, there's a right way, a way that accords with the way that you should cut the brisket. Um, and, and there's a way that you can do it that accords with not cutting in line with the brisket. And as the Bible lays out for us with enough clarity that we can look at our own lives, we can look at the world around us, and we can evaluate it along those lines. In other words, we can look at certain behaviors, certain practices, certain ways of disciplining children, certain ways of eating or sleeping, certain ways of handling money, And we can say, that's foolish. Or we can look at it and say, that's wise. We can look at certain approaches to sexuality. We can say, that's evil. We can look at others and say, that's righteous. That's good. And you can say it with certainty and with clarity. And the grounds by which we can say those things and assert those things is the fundamental confession, God created the heavens and the earth. Now do you see why this is offensive in our day? Perhaps the most offensive thing a person can say in our day. And yet I can think of nothing more necessary in our day than to just faithfully live and speak and evaluate our lives and the world through the lens of that confession. We live in a world in which the month of June is our world's celebration of its descent into madness. It's fundamentally, above everything else that Pride Month represents, it represents a celebration of um, your need to celebrate my every whim, my every desire, my every lust, my every way of defining myself. In other words, this month is a celebration, culture-wide celebration, taken up by corporations on their Twitter feeds, putting little rainbows in their notice in the Paramount app with the flag, like the rainbows in the mountain. 
celebrating as loud as it possibly can what the Bible would call wickedness and what the Bible would also call foolishness. The definition of foolishness, of folly, of doing that which leads to your own destruction, of cutting, whether it's with the grain or against the grain, whichever the wrong one is, of the brisket. That's what it's a celebration of, and it's an enforcement of your need to celebrate folly as well. Love cannot celebrate folly. Love cannot celebrate wickedness. Love cannot celebrate that which leads to our neighbor's destruction. And so, we come to this controversial statement that serves as the grounds of what we're going to look at here in Proverbs 3. God created the heavens and the earth. But I want to just talk for a second before we get into the actual text about why this is controversial outside of the church. We've already tipped our hat to that. But why speaking the way that we're going to be speaking all summer is actually controversial within the church, and particularly within the evangelical church of our day. In other words, why is it that so few churches will speak the way that we're going to attempt to speak this summer? In other words, so few churches will say to you, hey, if you come across honey out in a field somewhere, I'm trying to figure out a way to preach this sermon this summer. It's going to be great. If you happen to be walking in a field and you come across a big thing of honey, you should eat your fill. Eat it. Give thanks to God. He's provided you for honey. But you should not eat too much of it because you will get sick. That would be foolish and stupid. So Chris, stop short of overeating the honey that you find this summer in a field somewhere. Like so few ways of, of, of coming to the word of God um, actually will, 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 will you, where you heal, where, where, where you will hear people saying like, hey, th- doing this very practical thing, is actually foolish. Like if you find yourself sleeping in every morning this summer, the Bible would call that lazy and foolish. Now in us, if you felt that, there is like a, you can't tell me when to wake up in the morning. I saw you, you felt that. Don't tell me when to get up this morning. Um, so, so why is there that sort of controversy? Outside of the church, it's because there's a fundamental rejection of God as the Lord. There is um, a, a, a radical commitment to saying, I am my own, own God. Therefore, I am my own source of wisdom. I am my own source of good and evil. It's determined by my, it's determined by my feelings. It's determined by my desires. It's determined by my anxieties. I am my own God. Therefore, it is a refusal, a fundamental refusal um, to accept wisdom from outside of ourselves or or to accept judgments of the world from outside of ourselves. We become um, the judge. We become the king. We become the sage. We become the warrior. We are our own gods. But what about inside the church? I think there's a couple of things coming together there would be tendencies for those of us in this room who've been around kind of evangelical, biblical Christianity um, for most of our lives. 
If you haven't, then maybe this disease hasn't struck you and you should just avoid it. We, we tend to want a Christianity. In fact, we've, we've tended to be discipled in a Christianity that primarily lives in our emotions or our affections and in our heads. In other words, when we talk about Christianity, when we talk about the church, when we talk about living faithfully before God, what we primarily usually mean, um, and what's usually been meant by that over the last few decades, at least in America, has, has been, at least in reform circles, it's been, are you thinking right thoughts about God? Like, are they in conformity to the right confession of faith? And the right version, because there's a difference between the 1662 version and the 1670-whatever version. So which ones are you in line with? Make sure you've got all that squared away, and you can... Like, we've tended to think, particularly in the tradition that most of us have come from, in terms of Christian faithfulness is clear, right, confessional thinking. Now... I don't ever want you to think that's unimportant. I mean, I am one of those weirdos. I think it really matters what your confession you take on. It it matters, but we've tended to think almost exclusively of Christianity in those terms. We may tip our hat to a handful of ethical categories, like sexuality or I shouldn't get drunk, um, those kinds of things, but we primarily think in terms of do we get our confessions right? The other primary influencer within evangelical Christianity has been Christianity as something that resides um, down in our hearts. And and our hearts even there wrongly identified as down in our emotional response to whatever's happening around us. So Christianity as warm, good feelings about God. And so we assess and evaluate um, even, uh, even equating the, the measure of our faith with how excited about, how impassioned we are for, um, how ecstatic or existentially mind-blown we are by considering God. And you've seen this kind of throughout the churches. You see lots of churches that focus on the mind. We're going to memorize the catechism and we're going to te- have really crazy, deep, rich Bible study and that's what we're going to do to develop your Christian faithfulness. Or you see other churches that design an entire experience, they call it worship experience, on a Sunday such that you are immersed in and you are, um, can't help but have kind of a, a biochemical response to the chord progressions and the light progression and the darkness and the thing and the volume and the drums and the big subwoofer that makes your chest shake and all that things happen um, such that you have an emotional response. And, and yet Christianity is, is, it is, is it absolutely necessary that we confess the faith faithfully and biblically? Yes. Does the Bible everywhere command our affections? Absolutely. And um, God is forming a people. Ephesians says in Ephesians 2, for good works. And that's not like, like good works defined as good thoughts, good works defined as crying during the right song. It's 
good works defined as like doing things with your hand and your hands and your life and your mind and your mouth, building things, building businesses, building families, building tables, building meals, um, building hospitality, um, um, cultures of hospitality, um, building schools, um, um, raising families, um, building careers um, that honor God, that, that glorify God. We've tended to, to want a Christianity that lives in our hearts or our heads, but not coming out our fingertips and our hands. Um, we tend to want to think that what we do in this life with our lives, our actual lives, but we don't want it really to matter that much to God. I think partly it's because we don't think it matters very much to God. That when you go to work on a Monday, our tendency is to not think that matters very much to God. It's kind of circumstantial, it might be necessary, but it's not a fundamental component of what God's made you for. And therefore, doing it in a way, a way that's self consciously dependent upon God for how you should go about doing it. Um, it is not really a, a part of the equation that we live in. Again, Christianity is something that resides in our emotions or resides in our head. It doesn't have much to do with what we do on a Monday or how we speak to our children or how we speak to our spouse or how much honey we eat tonight for dessert. Do you guys do that ever? Just pour out a bowl of honey and say, this is dessert. Just going to eat the honey? I do. Um... We don't tend to think that way. And then here's the last piece. I think we are terrified, as a Christian culture in America, terrified of a bogeyman called legalism. And we're so terrified of it that we've made it mean everything. Rather than meaning what it actually means scripturally, we've made it mean any attempt to define for someone how they should live in specific ways before God. To tell someone um, that their children need a Christian education, that's legalism. To, to tell someone, hey, like, you shouldn't sleep in every morning, that's legalism. Um, to, to say that, hey, we should honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, it's, in, it's written in the law, it's in one of the Ten Commandments, that seems like legalism to me. In other words, we turn any actual command of Scripture. I can literally just be reading a passage of Scripture to someone saying, hey, here's what the Bible says, and you should do this. And go, it sounds like you're being legalistic, maybe even a little judgmental. In other words, we, we're, we're terrified of ever being perceived as, or maybe even, maybe genuinely, just we don't want to be legalists. So, so let me define for you what legalism is before I start telling you what you should do with your life this summer. Legalism is not any time you speak from the Bible to define for people how they should live in this world. That's not legalism. That, in fact, is, should be motivated by love and can be love. This represents for us the best possible way to live in the world. 
It speaks to everything in our lives, from how we, when we get up in the morning, when we go to bed at night. It speaks to how we should sing, what we should feel about wickedness. It tells us what we should do with our sexuality. It tells us what we should do with alcohol. It tells us what we should do with everything, how to have a good marriage, a happy marriage. Don't you want your neighbors to have a happy marriage? Isn't that loving? Well, then you should tell them how to live according to the Scriptures. Legalism is not independence on the scriptures, instructing people how to live their lives or telling them, hey, this is what wisdom would require. Here's what folly is. Here's what goodness is and righteousness is. Here's what evil is. That's not legalism. Legalism is manifest in really two ways, and one is fundamental. The first way, and not the the most fundamental way, is when we go beyond what the Bible actually says to tell people how they ought to live their life. In other words, when we start creating, um, what the Pharisees would do is create kind of all kinds of different layers or barriers beyond what the scriptures actually commanded to tell people they ought to live this way. That they had to live this way. That the righteous, in other words, that the line between righteous and unrighteous, between wisdom and folly, was not in what the Bible actually says, but but beyond what the Bible actually says. Second version of legalism. So we should one, we should avoid that. Make sure that when you're helping someone, when you're speaking truth to someone, when you're assessing your own life, you don't go beyond the text. This is where God has spoken, and so we live according to this word. Second form that legalism takes, and it's usually tied to the first. Legalism is when I assess your righteousness or unrighteousness before God, or or your salvation. But when I teach in such a way that I say your salvation is dependent upon your behavior, salvation or forgiveness or grace has to be earned. That would be legalism. In other words, I'm basing your righteousness before God. Not on your faith in Jesus Christ, but on your behavior. That's legalism. So so when we go to Proverbs, and it says, the sluggard is the one who can't lift the spoon out of the sugar bowl. And I say, you seem like the kind of person, I'm going to pick on my friend Chase, Chase, he won't even lift his hand out of the sugar bowl. I say, that's lazy. Stop being lazy, you sluggard. That's not legalism. In fact, just to help you out, that's not even mean. It's like nice. Like, hey, you're going you're gonna to be good for nothing. Right now you are. Get your hand out of the bowl. Eat it. At least eat the sugar. It's in your hand. That's not legalism. It's not meanness. It's speaking and assessing the world according to Scripture. And if I love my friend Chase, and I want him to be able to enjoy the sugar, and not just have it sit on his hand grossly in the bowl, because we can't all get our hands in there to get our own sugar, because his hand is just sitting there, oiling and sweating all over the sugar. 
If I love him, I want him to get his hand out of the sugar bowl and not be a slugger anymore. Again, not legalism. It's actually love. It's not judgmentalism. It's not arrogance. Now, I might be arrogant. That's quite apart from saying simply what the text actually says. Okay, so that's that's what's controversial. It's maybe why it will feel foreign in some places for us to say, hey, if you're doing this, it's stupid. It's foolish. Stop it. You should do this instead. If you're not disciplining your children, hey, that's, that's dumb. It's not just like some religious sphere of you're not fulfilling some sort of religious ob- ob- um, obligation. It's actually really dumb. And frankly, it's going to lead to like really bad things for your kids. So for us to speak that way, speak according to the scriptures, it's not legalism. It's actually trying to teach and trying to help us learn how do we cut the brisket in the right way. So it doesn't turn into a crumbly mess, but it actually is good strips of brisket with little fat edges and deliciousness. So in a world that God has made, in a world that God has made in which there is a thing that is objectively foolish and objectively wise, objectively good and objectively evil, how do we posture ourselves as we head into the rest of the summer and we look at different Proverbs um, throughout the course of the summer? What should be kind of a fundamental posture that we come back to week in and week out as we listen to the Proverbs taught every single week? We're going to take three things from this text that I pray you would come back to every single week when this book is opened to you, either whether it's me doing it or one of our other elders. Three texts. We're going to move backwards through the text in a world that's made by God, in a world that, that, um, whose wisdom and folly is established and maintained by God, um, who's good, um, who has d- defined for us the nature of good and evil. How do we live in that kind of world. First, look at verse 7. He says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So the very first thing necessary for living skillfully in the world like the one that we live in is that you stop thinking your wise in your own eyes. Stop thinking you know how the world works on your own. Stop assuming that you're the wise one. Instead, begin with, and the Proverbs actually reiterate this several times in the early chapters, kind of hammer this home. Um, The the Proverbs, by the way, is written from a father to his son, and he establishes from the get-go, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. In other words, the beginning of wisdom. If you want to live skillfully in the world, you have to begin here. There is a God, and he's smarter than I am. Like, you have to stop looking inside at your own rationalizations. You have to stop looking inside at your own feelings as an assessment of how you ought to live in the world. This is exactly how our culture defines wisdom, by the way. 
How do you feel? What do you want? What do you desire? Assessing what you need and how you should live based on becoming very, very in touch with how you feel. Now, feelings matter, but not like that. They are not a source of wisdom. They're very often a source of folly. But you must begin by saying, I'm not, I, I don't have wisdom on my own. And I recognize that there is a God and I should fear him. So that will then push us towards point two with this, this consideration. If wisdom isn't in here, if wisdom isn't in here, it means I have to look somewhere else besides myself to find wisdom. Does that make sense? I can't depend on my own feelings or my own thoughts. I have to therefore become dependent on something else from which I can gain wisdom or how to live skillfully in the world. In other words, I have to look outside of myself to understand how much wine I should drink. What's a skillful amount of wine to drink over dinner? What's a skillful amount of honey to eat on a Tuesday afternoon when I happen to walk in a field and see honey? What's, what's a skillful way to approach the question of sex and sexual pleasure? What's a skillful way to approach someone else's argument on Facebook? Is that the tail of the dog I want to grab today? I have to look outside of myself, outside of my own desires, outside of my own thoughts about what might be wise, outside of my own anxieties and fears that often are so deep-seated we can barely even see them. We just feel them impulsively moving us in really stupid directions. Such that like days later we go like, what in the world was I thinking? I have that conversation often. I don't know what I was doing. You have to look outside of yourself. And so point two, verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So, so what does it mean to trust in the context of wisdom, in the context of Proverbs? I, I don't think it primarily means, hey, trust like the right theological things about God. I don't think it primarily means, hey, trust that your sins are forgiven. I think it primarily means, like, in the most practical way I know how to say it, is like, God knows what he's talking about. Like, he's smart. I remember sitting in college, and a a preacher came, and um, we were sitting in a room, there was like 40 of us there, and he said, he, he just started his, his little talk. It wasn't really a sermon. It was like a talk. He started it by saying, like, do you think God is smart? So, so I would actually pose the same question to you. Do you think God is smart? And not just like about religious stuff, but about like parenting. 
Like, do you think God knows what he's talking about? Or do you think like through like Freud and developmental scientists and all that stuff, we've learned, God, why don't you stay in your lane? You can worry about like music and I don't know, like ethical stuff, but, but or religious theology. Leave the parenting stuff to us. Do you think he's smart? God speaks about human sexuality. Do you think he's smart? Like, does he know what he's talking about? Is he smarter than the Q? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you. But when he talks about nutrition and food, like, does your CrossFit gym coach see no more than God? Some of y'all do CrossFit, maybe. Looks like maybe two of you. <laughs> Trying to push up this week. Does he know more of we? Well, we've graduated from that crazy old man in the sky telling me to eat honey. Does he know there's carbs in honey? I got to keep my carb load below 16. If I drink, eat my fill, then I'll, I'll be at least 300. Like, does God know what he's talking about? So first we have to look beyond or outside of ourselves to find wisdom, beyond our own emotions, our own rationalizations. And, and then the question comes up, well, who do we look to? Will we look to God, and, and that's what it means to trust in him. I'm not just to trust him for some like theological truths, not just to trust him that he forgives your sins, not just to trust him that Jesus is God, not just to trust him for all the theological principles, but to say, hey, when God speaks about a thing, he knows what he's talking about. Because he made it. Like he knows, he knows the human body and how it works way more than your doctor does. Isn't that wild to think about? Actually, I had this conversation uh, with my doctor um, a few months ago. She's not a Christian, and, and, uh, and she was, uh, we were talking about medis- medications, and different medications go on or not go on, and all these kind of things. And um, she says, well, you know, it's, it's kind of more than an art than it is a science. And I said, look, I, my general idea is that you know, like, 10 billion percent more than I do about how the body works and how the chemicals in the body work and what does what and how things should work. And my guess is that you know one, one billionth of what there is to know about the human body. And to my great joy, she wasn't insulted at all. She was like, yes. Well, God made it. He made every single cell. In fact, the author um, Paul says in Colossians that he holds every single one of those atoms um, that makes up your body together, moment by moment, by commanding them to stay exactly what they are. So when you think about how we should eat or how we should exercise or how much sleep you should get, um, um, you shouldn't look to yourself. You shouldn't look to your own emotions. Um, you should trust in the Lord. Should lean on your own understanding, but rather in all of your ways, in every single thing that you do, you should acknowledge him. Then he says he will make your path straight. He, you won't find yourself in life um, constantly going back and forth, constantly getting bogged down, constantly getting lost. Um, the, the, this 
um, this phrase, make the path straight, doesn't mean that the path will be easy. It just means it will be far more direct. It'll be easier to get where you're going because not, not that it will be easy to get where you're going, but, but it won't be co- constantly going back and forth and getting lost in the bog. It'll be a direct route towards the kind of life that God has designed you for and made you for. So look away from yourself. Trust in the Lord. Trust that he knows about everything, that he knows how things work. And just wake up every morning and remind yourself, when you begin to open the scriptures, remind yourself, God is smart. What a simple yet profound confession to make. He's wise. He knows like best about everything. Way better than I do. And last, verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. I want to take up those two ideas, steadfast love, um, as it's translated in the ESV. It's um, has said in the Hebrew, it literally just communicates, um, let not, covenant love or the covenant binding of God forsake you. And faithfulness simply means that God keeps his promises. Faithfulness is just doing what you say you're going to do. I'm standing by the standard um, that you've set or that has been set. So the author here says, let not, Solomon here says, let not the covenant love of God. Um, and covenant is a communal concept. It's a communal idea. Um, uh, this is essentially saying, um, don't let the community of God's covenant love, the community that belongs to God, um, the, the, um, the, the church, the people of God, let not um, the, the people who are loved by God, let not that community um, be forsaken by you or depart from you. Rather, um, uh, be bound up by, be, be, um, be brought into and belong to the place or the, or the dwelling place of the very covenant love of God, which is the church. And second, don't let the faithfulness of God forsake you. In other words, you should self-consciously belong to, persist in belonging to community of people who are loved by God. And you should never forget that God is never a liar. You belong weird. You belong to the covenant love of God, and He never breaks His promises. You belong to the community that has inherited the promises of God, and God is never a liar. You um, belong to the community that has been given the law of God, um, um, that has been given the wisdom of God, that has been given, most of all, the spirit, the very dwelling place of God among his people. And God is never a liar. He never changes his mind. And it says here, you should bind them around your neck. Now, now, the interesting thing about this phrase is people who had stuff bound around their necks, guess what they were? Slaves. In other words, you, and the reason why you have something bound around your neck is because you became so identified with this particular house, so, so, so particularly identified with this Lord, this 
master, that it marked you all the days of your life. And so what is Solomon saying? Oh, if you want to live in a world created by this God, if you want to live with skill in a world created by this God, you've got to look outside of yourself to find wisdom. You should look to the Lord and trust in him, believing that he's smart, trying to listen to everything that he says and do it. And then third, you should all of your days be marked by the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness. Be defined by it. Find your very identity in it. That I am one who belongs to a people who are betrothed to God, um, are bound to God, who are in covenant bond to him, and he never lies. So how do you live wisely in this world? Week after week, you gather with this community and you come to this covenant table and you eat this bread and you drink this wine. You be marked forever by the steadfast covenant love of our God and tasting the reminder each and every week that he never lies. Let's pray and prepare for communion. So, Father, we come to this table. We come to a table where you feed us the very body of Christ. We drink of his very blood. We're reminded and we taste of your steadfast covenant love. We're reminded because it happens every single week of your faithfulness. And so, God, I pray that this would train us not not merely to to remember that our sins are forgiven, not not merely to remember um, your love for us, um, given to us and and purchasing us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But God, it was also teach us to look to you for wisdom. For for if, if your love comes to us in bread and wine, then your wisdom will come to us in how we do marriage and how we discipline children and how we... Um, work and what time we get up in the morning and how much honey we eat. And so God, grant us wisdom as we eat this body and this blood. In your name we pray, amen.